where all my children are the light Born in the sinning, but steady striving to do right My people are warriors, all we know is to fight Pray, they see God and everything I write yeah. Alright, you see what it is Classes in session once again. This is a very, very exciting and special canons class because I have uh, a friend uh, and someone that I would say is uh, I don't even know how to explain because I'm definitely not gonna say I'm a peer because I'm not on I'm not on her level because oh, uh, wow. <laughs> she is a attorney and principal and CEO of the Impact Strategies as well as a CNN and NPR political analyst and. Strategist and done so many things for the community and really making it happen. Uh, the one and only, the queen, Angela Rise in the building. How you doing? Thank you very much. I'm <laughs> good. Um, definitely peers, so don't uh, say that. Uh, we we do different work different ways, but I think we have the same end goal. Yeah, yeah. So I think we're, we're that's peers. and that's what we're gonna talk about today because you know in our. Uh, Times not in front of cameras and all that stuff. We we get to have uh, some discourse and conversation about a few things that you know. I wouldn't say we we disagree or debate, but it really is an interesting conversation on the approaches that we take when helping the community. Because ultimately, both of us are about the community. But you know, this is this is a important time and currently what's going on in our country. And you are definitely one of the leaders in and uh, strongest voices in our community. So I'm honored to sit here and chop it up. And right now, really, this this is like a pregame. You know what I mean? Yeah. Before we get into it, because, uh, you know, we here at Howard University and we we wanted to bring the students in. And of course, uh, Dr. Carter, chairman of uh, Africana Studies here, and he's going to help moderate. I wouldn't say it's a debate, but you and I always we I would say we have different different perspectives on voting in America. And uh, you are definitely doing the groundwork. And, you know, I admire and salute everything that you're doing when it comes to that. But I think, you know, I'm, I'm going to bring it from the perspective of what I see when I'm out in the field and really talking to people who don't know what's going on when it comes to policy and politics, uh, but really trying to make a difference in their community, but don't feel like this government is set up for them to win. Mm-hmm. So I want to take that approach. Uh, and hopefully, I mean, you can answer answer some of these questions that you know not only I have but you know a lot of my brothers and sisters in the community have when it's when we out there and we see everybody saying you got to get out there and vote and it's like but why mm-hmm. you know what I mean and and that's all we just wanted to set the table for that and I I know you know this is a dual podcast this is you know uh what I do here weekly but also your your podcast is extremely powerful and, and popular so anything you want to shoot my way I'm, I'm rocking as well but it's, it's a conversation you know yeah so we um actually have a, a segment called conversate on on one conversate not Conver- converse but conversate no, conversate because <laughs> that's west coast real life word yeah 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 um and that's what I'm always repping so I think the most important thing to me is that um, when there's a conversation, even um, when you don't agree, that it is civil enough for people to be able to understand um, both sides of an issue. I think given the current circumstances, um, what we found is that the lack of engagement by us uh, is dangerous. Right. Um, and I think that we have um, we spend so much time talking about we owe it to our ancestors. They died for the right to vote. But that really is true. Um, What's been on my heart all week, um, I just recorded a BET special for the midterms called Our Vote, Our Power. And like Fannie Lou Hamer's spirit has just been, you know, just near me. And the thing that I keep thinking about is not her saying I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired, but almost losing her life as a sharecropper. Um, so that we could vote. Uh, thinking about all the ways in which she was organizing people and never being properly credited for that. Right. Um, so that we could vote. 
And then when you think about all of the different things public policy touches, whether it's you know, where we can buy groceries, whether or not we live in a food desert, right. um, whether or not there's a, a lot that's been zoned properly so we can start up that new business or have a home there. Um, when we talk about gentrification and redlining, all of these things are matters of public policy. And so we if if we're not in the game and we're not helping to shape those conversations I don't I don't know what else we can really do. And you bring up a, a great topic, which I want to get into once we get in front of uh, the students and the faculty is policy. Yep. And, you know, that's probably my biggest issue. You know what I mean? Because I feel like they throw us out two week options and they put it they split it down the middle, you know, in the divided states of America where they want you to choose a side. But even that policy is based off of capitalism and this corporate structure that really it's like. Who really benefits from any policy? Because really, they can't really give us real power. So they they give us ideas that, okay, we can give you a little bit or we can give you a little less, but they're not really giving you the whole pot. And it's that idea. And I feel like we always set a framing question, mm -hmm. but I think the, the, the common statement under the framing question is, is truly about, is it resistance and taking and having the resistance as a community or having a revolution as a community? Mm -hmm. And I feel like the difference between resistance is probably, yo, we going to stand for what's ours and we going to operate in your system and try to make some changes within your system. And then the revolution is fuck the system. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like we just going to come and get ours and, and we going to take over and we don't want to be a part of your system. And at so all. how's that working for us? Um, I don't think we've ever really done it, but if you think all revolution, if we, whether it's the revolutions that we've experienced here in, in America or even outside of America, uh, when we talk about Pan-Africanism, that has done great things for us, mm -hmm. you know, and that's and that's the real I thing. Think, I think the yeah. common and we'll get into it a little deeper, but it's that idea of like, yeah, we can work within the system. That's fine. But let's create our own system. Even, let's if, stop you, even if you do create your own system, you have to understand the system as it is and you have to have allies in the system as it is to even be if you were going to overthrow it. Like, I believe that. Um, part of the reason that we have made some of the strides we made is because there were people who were intimately familiar with the system. 100%. If you look at agreed. what um, Dr. King was doing with his allies, there were people who played, um, you know, I'm all the way on the rebellion side, yeah. I'm on the revolution side. There were folks who were on the resistance side and there were folks who were like, okay, we're going to, like you think yeah. about Andy Young. Right. Andy Young was all the way in, like talking to him in Memphis just this year. I was like frustrated. Yeah. No, that's not it. But he's such, he's a peacekeeper and you yeah. have to have all of that to really ensure 100%. our ultimate survival. And but, I think once we get in there, we're going to chop it up. You bring up Dr. King and I, I kind of, you know, they there's like the Malcolm theories and then there's the, the Martin theories and even, you know, they say, you know, when it came to rights and voting, they let Dr. King march and, and speak. But as soon as he started talking about money, that's when they killed him. So mm -hmm. it's like when you really, no when you get to that aspect of like, there's only one party, you know what I mean? That's the corporate party. You mean, uh, WB Du Bois said it best. He's like, there, there's, uh, only one evil party with, with two names. And as we choose, whether it's conservative or liberal Democrat or Republican, all of that stuff, I would love for you to expound and, and just explain in front of, you know, our students, what, it, what is voting? You know, that's the framing question. Not, not even just what is voting, but why, why exercise that right? right? And what's the importance of it? Because I think, you know, people I talk to, they, they, they don't see no real point in it because, you know, no matter what the administration was from Reagan, Bush, Clinton, Obama, Bush, <laughs> 
the Trump plantation we on right now, the hood been the I'm same. I'm not on the plantation. <laughs> we, the, the, the hood <laughs> been the same. The hood is is honestly always been the same. And and to so let's dive in. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Let's 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 put it in front of some people. We're gonna have uh, Dr. Carr kind of be the the administrator at hand and and really frame up some of these questions for us and I'll take one side you take the other and we'll get to it alright let's do sounds it sounds good yes yeah. H-U you oh. clap it up y'all this is <laughs> a, a very very special uh Canon's class, so class is in session. And like I say, I'm not a teacher, a professor, any of that. I'm just a facilitator and a vessel uh, to have some interesting conversations. And I am honored today to uh, be on a, a panel or in between right now, two people that I respect and admire at the utmost level. Uh, of course, our conversations with our chairman of Africana Studies, Dr. Carr. Uh, who, yeah, you know, he uh, uh, he's going he's going to uh, help facilitate and, and moderate what we got going on today. This conversation with someone that I consider a friend, uh, a colleague. I never say peer because she's on a whole nother level, uh, but uh, she's graced us with her presence today. Uh, I would say. CEO, principal, attorney of uh, Impact Strategies, a political analyst that we've seen on CNN, NPR, so many other platforms. She also has a very special uh, platform that she's doing because of midterm elections with BET uh, that we can all check out. But uh, the the one and only, the illustrious, the queen, the the powerful Angela Rye. Y'all give it up for Now, Angela and I have had conversations, uh, you know, off field and in uh, settings that aren't in front of cameras and microphones about how we feel. And we both feel like we have the same goal for our community, but just a couple of different approaches. And then when I had the opportunity to talk to Dr. Carr uh, about our conversations, he said, yo, we got to have the the world needs to hear that conversation. And and that's what we're doing here today, but in an intimate setting of a classroom so we can have uh, this discourse, this dialogue amongst all of us. So if y'all got questions, y'all, you know, we're going to set the table and then uh, we'll we'll get up and, and get to it because her and I can get get a little heated uh, based off of and, and it's and it's all I of love you know what I mean I, uh, the the ideas that I share and the ideas that she shares ultimately are to to better and empower our people uh, it's just really understanding and getting to that same purpose so uh, we're gonna have a good time and, and join in wherever you feel like you need to join in and again I'm just here to learn you know we're gonna chop it up but but I, I want to soak in some of this wisdom and some of this game so I'm gonna hand it over to Dr. Carr so I can you know get in my corner and do what I gotta do I'm going to keep this very short to begin with. Nick shared that uh, he and Angela have been talking a uh, a lot about this, particularly as you've been moving around the country, Angela, trying to get our folks energized, do what they need to do in these next couple of weeks. And just listening to the nature of y'all's conversation really triggered something for us, uh, the two of us. So what we really did is began a deep dive into the question of what is voting? What does it represent? What does it mean to people on the ground? As recently as this morning, we got into a conversation in Instruction African American Studies about the difference between resistance and revolution. Yes. And I'm sure I hope some of y'all will join in that in a minute, talking about that question. 
is voting resistance? Is it revolutionary? So I guess the first question I would throw out and have both of you all maybe consider and have a conversation with each other about a little bit is what is voting? What does it represent? What is it in fact? And I only say one other thing. The conversation that Nick and I began to have, which then led to re reading a lot of text. A lot of y'all may not know that uh, Jesse Jackson wasn't the first black person to run for president. And, <laughs> and Shirley Chisholm wasn't the first black woman to be on a, on a ticket to run for president or vice president. They gotta go back to Lucy Parsons for that. <laughs> and you might not know that Dizzy Gillespie ran for president. <laughs> Dick Gregory ran for president. Yep. And so we reread this book together because we both real good friends with Bobby Dick before he passed. And he wrote a yeah. book, Write Me In. Yeah. His 1968, 1968 One of the most powerful years. Man. 1968, obviously we all know what happened in, in 68, but even that was also a year, uh, an election year on so many different things. So Maybe that, the most important year that really set the table for where we are now. Ab absolutely. It was funny because, I mean, kind of like myself, and I'll even give you all a little, little background with, with Dick Gregory and our relationship. He was, uh, before he passed, he was definitely like a mentor to me. Uh, went on the road with him. He was a part of my last stand-up special. We actually, I mean, he actually lived here in D.C. Uh, and... He would, I mean, he would give me so much game, but as we know, Dick Gregory is also like a conspiracy theorist. So like, he used to say wild stuff like, <laughs> yo, he'd be like, if you ever see Donald Trump with the red tie on, that's the clone. <laughs> like, <laughs> like is the blue tie, that's the real Trump. The red tie is the clone. <laughs> but it's just like, but I mean, I obviously, you know, my, my man was in his 80s, but he had so much wisdom. And that was the thing that was interesting about him because you never knew when he was entertaining you and when he was teaching you. And, you know, he put on everybody from, you know, uh, Man, Cosby, Pryor, oh, all no these question. people. And he was, you know, he was, I believe, the first black comedian ever on television. Yeah, Tonight Show. Yeah, and he, you know, he, and it was a thing where he was like, yo, I'm not going to come on the Tonight Show unless I could sit on the couch because a black person had never How sat on the couch before. And he turned it down mad times. And they was like, all right, you can finally come. And he got a chance to sit on that couch. So it's just stuff Which like that. Everybody that, else got to sit. Yeah, from that, from that <laughs> point on. So even a lot of people don't even know who Dick Gregory is. But as a comedian, man, like, I know, you know, there wouldn't be the people that we love and that we look up to from the Chappelle's, the Hart's, the Cat Williams, the Eddie Murphy's, if it wasn't for someone like this. But he made a, a strong stance in his walk to not even uh, just be an entertainer, but to be an activist. That's right. And a lot, he was making crazy bread, especially in the 60s at the time. And he was using all his money to fund the civil rights. You know, his him, Harry Belafonte, Sidney Poitier, a bunch of cats during that time. And he spoke to me even having a chance to sit with, you know, Mr. Belafonte and, and Dick Gregory and was like, yo, we're going to pass you the torch and we're going to pass you the torch in that sense of not just being an entertainer because you we know you can make the white people smile really well and, you know, they comfortable with you, but also really connecting with the community in a real way and being that bridge. So I'm being able to be on network television and shake hands and kiss babies, but at the same time do the work in the community. And I took that as a real responsibility. And so much so studying analyzing like why he ran for president in 68 was it a joke you know what i mean was it to to sell a book or was it really to show how corrupt this system actually is why don't we start with that nick instead yeah. instead of me jump back in and then Angela, when nick finished y'all yeah, no, we no, are no, 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 no. i was just no, we, but, we but, back but rocking no, set, now set the stage what is the vote i mean how, how you just you were just about to do it yeah go um, ahead brother and then y'all can go ahead yeah from from dick gregory's book in 68 and then even ideas of like going all the way back to like adam smith 
Smith, who's like the the father of, you know, economics and the pioneer back in the day, but also was a political analyst from like somewhere in Europe. I forgot where it actually was, but it was really saying what is our government ultimately you know what i mean i like we've we've this country was established to to have a democracy but ultimately it was really about a corporation you know and, and capitalism and that's really just what i wanted to focus on because even like we have third parties and and as in 68 dick gregory literally wanted you to go in and write his name in on the ballot uh but this two-party structure really wasn't designed for us it was teaching us really all right, we're going to give you a choice to make you feel like you're part of the process. But are you really informed of the policy? And are you more importantly, are you informed of how that policy was created? Because that policy is always created by money. And that's really my only argument, because it's, it's all a chase for capitalism. It's all a chase for that dollar. We all want that bag. A lot of us are in this room because either our parents want us to be here. So they so because they feel like we could get a good job and operate in this society. Or that's really our own goal It's like, yo, I want to get this degree. or I want to get in here so I can give me a good job, start a family. So it's really a paper chase. And then within that paper chase, they cloud us with, oh, yeah, you can be a part of this government and, and political process. I say it's a bunch of bullshit. Sorry. But I say like that. That's that's really they pulling the wool over our eyes. And it goes back to that conversation that we were having in class this morning. Like, is if are we really about resistance where I feel like resistance is yeah, let's get in there and, and 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 operate within the system and, you know, get some powerful people like uh, Governor Gillum. I'm going to go ahead and speak that into existence uh, and, and and operate within the system so it can be more than anything, because in my in my opinion, government politics, a lot of it is just pageantry, but I love the pageantry. I love being able to tell my, my son that there was a black president. You know, I love being able to say, yo, we're in office, but that's, to me, is that's operating within resistance when revolution is saying, fuck the system, we gonna overthrow the system and create our own system. Uh, ultimately, it's all about community, but I'm going to say, yo, if we really about it, let's let's understand the power of the black dollar. Let's understand the power of our culture and operate in that and say we don't want to operate in your system. Um, and that's just my perspective and really setting the table to where when you say what is voting to me, I say it's a facade. I mean. So is yours. Well, thank you all for having me here this morning. Um, first, I just want to give. Um, honor really to uh, my ancestors and to um, the folks who made the positions of privilege I now sit in possible. Um, so I think about Harriet Tubman. We talked earlier for a second about Fannie Lou Hamer. Um, I think about folks like Nat Turner and Denmark Vesey. And, you know, I can go on and on. But there are also some folks who are a little bit closer to me. I see them like extended family, the Congressional Black Caucus. I told Eugene when we walked in here today that the first thing that came to mind is when I became the executive director of the CBC. I wanted to bring my team to this school because this school, this library is what houses the Congressional Black Caucus archives. The Congressional Black Caucus was founded in 196, sorry, 1971 by, CBC, by members who look like us from communities like ours 
who said they were tired of being discounted and invisible, even though they worked their behinds off to get to the seats of power in which they existed. When they started the CBC right before they had sent over to Richard Nixon 60 plus recommendations for what he could do to strengthen and make visible the black community. They weren't counting on him to be the sole mechanism for which the community changed. Right. But it was an important point for him to understand. You can't ever apply pressure to an elected official that does not understand your agenda. The problem with the vote is not that we're not all exercising it. The problem with the vote is not that we're all apathetic. The problem with the vote is that we don't understand our real power. You can't overthrow a system you know nothing about. You can't overthrow a system you've never engaged in. You can't boycott and protest a system that you don't understand how it impacts your everyday life. We treat grocery shopping like it's required. We treat paying our taxes for the most part like it's required, right? We treat going to school and education like it's required. We go to we go to work so that we can pay our bills because it's required. The one thing that we treat as optional, and I would argue if you look around our community, the folks in it that are apathetic and say my vote doesn't matter, you have been conditioned to believe that. I believe that's a problem that began on the slave master's plantation. He's always tried to tell us that we are stronger divided, supporting their agenda, working against our own causes. So you see infighting in our communities. You see us not supporting our own businesses. You see us not supporting our own missions in life. That is slave mentality and this is yet another form of that. I'm not here to tell you all that voting is the only way forward for our people. We all know better than that. But it is a means to an end goal. It is just the first step of your political activism. It is the least you can do. It is the least required of you. When I think about the CBC members, they would not have been in office if your mothers and your fathers and your grandmothers and your grandfathers didn't go vote for them. They needed that support to gain those seats. When you look at the positions of power now in Congress, we still make up less than 10 percent of the. In fact, it's more like four to five percent of Congress. There are only three black senators in the United States. And it's because even when you look at our demographics, particularly in a in a in a hotbed like the South, where we should be winning, we should be we should have been participating. We're not there because somebody told us that we weren't powerful when we vote. And the devil is a liar. So I'm going to give you one other example. I agree that the two party system is not beneficial, probably not just for black folks, but for most poor people in this country. You're treated very much as invisible. You're an afterthought. Two weeks before the election, right about now, they go into your church and shaking hands, kissing babies, as you said. But here's what I will tell you. My dad, when um, apartheid ended in South Africa, um, he was very, very active in that in that movement. Um, I remember this sign or this poster that he got from Nelson Mandela's um, inauguration. Right. And it was this beautiful, colorful, super diverse um, uh, poster of all of the different political parties that existed in South Africa, a labor party, a national movement. I mean, all of these different parties. And when I looked at it, I was like, Dad, this says this is a democracy, but we have one here, too. And it's like two, maybe three on a good day four. Why doesn't it look like this? And he was like, well, the democracy here is broken. But my dad has never stopped working to fix that thing, whether it's on the local level, the state level or the federal level. I believe that he consistently works to fix it. And it's not just by voting. That was the first frontier. So I said at the beginning that I sit here in a position of privilege because I went to go vote with my parents every time there was an election. I was taught that I understand 
brothers and sisters, right, family, that we are not all taught the same way. So I'm conditioned to believe that my vote counts and it matters. And if I ever sat at an election, which I'm not going to lie to y'all, I have. Right. I felt the guilt of doing that, that my one vote could have made a difference. And they do. And they do. But I also want to acknowledge to you when we think about things like the Electoral College that was established on our backs. Slavery. We know the system yeah. was not designed for us. That does not be, that does not mean that we can't rebuild the system. If we built this entire country, we can damn sure build the system. But I'm telling you that I don't believe in anything being overthrown. I don't even believe in a cohesive agenda unless we first engage in the one that's before us, fix what's broken and ensure that we are moving our people forward by having a full on conversation. We can talk all day about overthrowing the system. You go overthrow the system and then what you going to do? What's your tax structure? How are you going to pay for schools? How are you going to ensure our voices are still represented? You think if after we overthrow it, they're not going to try to put some other barriers in place. They're trying to put them up right now. Look at Stacey and Andrew running in Georgia and Florida. Stacey's opponent is the secretary of state means he has a direct conflict of interest in the outcome and, and is directly interested in the outcome of the election. What is he doing as a result? Purging voters that are disproportionately black. Why? Because those are Stacey's voters. These are the very voters that she worked to register through the, the new Georgia project. Right. Andrew, his opponent is garbage. But um <laughs> Sorry, he was a spitting bars, moment. though. <laughs> yeah, but, but I was going to say that Andrew is also on the ballot and there in Florida, they're working to purge voters. Pissed off that there's an amendment for on the ballot to restore felon voting rights. We have the opportunity to reclaim our power. And again, I'm telling you, this isn't it. I'm not just here to tell you to vote. When you vote, you're going to feel all powerful. No, that's the first step. Do you know that if you vote or not, those elected officials work for you? You don't go hire folks and then walk away from your supervisory responsibilities. They owe you something. They owe you the implementation of your agenda. They owe you the fulfillment of their job description. Why not get in the game and set the job? So, I'm, I mean, I, I know you're going to take it back, but just to, to piggyback off of what you said, everything that you just stated, I agree with 100%. Um, but. Or 80%. <laughs> Only thing I would just say, just to your point, voting to me is like shadow boxing. You know what I mean? You ain't really fighting. That's not but to it, my point. But no, that's to your point. <laughs> but all I'm saying is, yeah, you got to do it. You know, you got and 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 it's interesting because even where our conversation first started on this topic is, I did a spoken word piece uh, that was called "Too Broke to Vote." And just by that statement, everybody automatically said Nick Cannon's against voting. You know what I mean? And therefore, and this was like pre-Trump. And so there was like, I, I even had people go all the way. Well, it's your fault. Trump the president. <laughs> if you would, if you wouldn't put out that damn uh, hippity hop rap thing you got going on, then some of the kids would have went and voted. And I'm like, OK, if that's how you really feel, clearly you didn't hear what the message was and what I was saying, because it actually wasn't about voting. The, the, the way I came up with uh, Too Broke to Vote, I was actually I was a surrogate in 2007 for uh President Obama before people actually believed. 
And I, we was in South Carolina, we was in Alabama, Ohio, all of these different places. And I literally, it was dope. Like it was on some like best Western, like Michelle and Barack in the next room. And I'm over here, we see each other at the ice machine type of thing, like before it was what it was. And I was inspired. I had my dad with me, my grandfather with me at the time who had been incarcerated and he his life has changed. It was an amazing experience for my family. And ultimately now for my son to even see that and to say, yo, I was a part of that process. But during that process, I was in these communities, in the hood, in the projects, in the in the jails and prisons, and they telling me like, nigga, we ain't voting. <laughs> we gotta pay these bills. Like we too broke to vote. That's what the brother actually told me. Like we too, we don't care about that. I'm trying to put food in my kid's mouth. And I was like, wow. That blew my mind because like you said, we do have a power, but our power is, is it's, it's compartmentalized. And even we think like, all right, do I focus my time and effort? There's only 24 hours in a day. Do I focus in this facade or this idea that I can believe that America is this great place? And if, if I put all my efforts and, and belief in this system, things will change. Or am I going to hustle up and get this back? And so I took that perspective of these people that I spoke to and I stated everything that we talked about from, you know, the Clinton administration and mass incarceration to to the ideas of there only being one corporate party to the ideas of really where it's a property mentality from our policing system on down. They look at us that we fuel this nation. We built this country, but they don't want us to rise above anything but that, they, because if we do. Just like Adam Smith said, it would overthrow and crash the entire economy and government if we were really to get our power, if we were really to get our 40 acres and a mule and with the trillions that equivalates, uh, equates to what it would be today, that it's just not possible. So therefore they throw voting, they throw, they throw elections in our face to make it seem like we can be a part of the process. Let me ask you though, you just said to really get our 40 acres and a mule. Right. How are we getting our 40 acres and a mule? How does that process happen? I mean, through the system. Oh. Right, but it shouldn't be a vote. I mean, I mean, of oh. course, but because it's already old. Why got to vote on some shit you already supposed because, to give to because me? Because... You are clearly... You are <laughs> clearly... Hold on, is, hold on, cause, and this is where um, history professor matters. Um, <laughs> when you, That's when kind you, of studies, but... <laughs> <laughs> but, but I'm saying history matters, History though. is incredibly important. That one, for example, Rufus Sexton, the field order that started 40 exam mule. Field order number 15. That's exactly right. When Special and, field order. Which Lincoln rescinded, shit. right? Which is why you vote in federal elections, right? I mean, they're federal, state, and local elections. And I know that's part of this conversation. That order was rescinded from the top. From from President Andrew Johnson, who became president when Abraham Lincoln was, was killed. killed. That's right. And so the reason why I'm bringing that up, because so, so and, and I love this because, Nick, no shade, but sometimes our folks, including you right now, <laughs> can be, be so deep that we're drowning. Okay. So the situation is there are certain things that we would still need to be able to do our own system that come from the process, process that currently exists. So here we go, finding ourselves in this cyclical pattern, right? We don't vote because we don't see ourselves reflected. We don't see ourselves reflected because we don't vote. 
We want to overthrow the system, but in order, in order to overthrow the oppressive system that exists, we have to change the system. The only way to change the system is to go inside the system. The only way to go inside the system is to vote our folks inside the system, but we won't vote because we don't see ourselves But that's there. the facade. It's, it's not. not a, but let's, like you said. <laughs> that's hi, real. <laughs> history, historical memory is, is, is very crucial, right? So at the time that the Civil War was going on, we couldn't vote. A handful of free blacks didn't play. And even in the North, they wouldn't let us vote, right? Immediately after Reconstruction, because Andrew Johnson, right, the Congress decides to put the hammer down on the South. They're a foreign, they're busy a foreign country. During that period of occupation, which they still, as we know, Southern, as y'all know, they still call it in some ways the, the time of occupation from the North, <laughs> black people voted. In fact, the Republican Party is why Ulysses S. Grant won the national election in 1868, and again, re-election in 72. It was the margin of black votes. But let's go to the 40 acres in the mule, because that was South Carolina. In South Carolina, black legislators at the local level, at the state level, are elected in numbers they'd never seen before because we weren't in office. Two black senators from Mississippi, so forth and so on. One of those legislators was Francis Cardozo. In fact, he, he was a statewide office. I want to say he was Secretary of State. There's a Cardozo High School here in D.C. because when they got elected, they started doing exactly what you said. Public education for everybody, regardless of color. Let's start thinking about how to redistribute this land. So those are, that's the agenda, right? Then the North retreats. In fact, Ulysses S. Grant won re-election in 1872, running on a campaign of reconciliation. Let's make up with our white friends in the South. Freddie Douglas and them are like, whoa, wait a minute, what about us? No, thank you, Negroes. You've helped us break these whites. Now we're going to reunify. Right. Once that happens, Jim Crow descends. They lock Francis Cardozo up for a year in South Carolina jail just because. Nigga, you're not going to be no elected politician. And they start pushing us off the voting rolls, to your point. This is before the Jim Crow constitutions, really. They're doing it by intimidation. They're shooting black people. They're doing some of the things they're doing today. Oh yeah, let me see your name. Oh, it don't match, no nigga. And and they're and you need seven forms right. of ID. Right. And by the and by the 1890s, 1898, for example, Wilmington, North Carolina, they basically kill black people. You know, Reverend Barber tell us about this in the Wilmington riot. Now, why do I go through all that to get to the point? Because when you mention the CBC, and I know that's your those are your people. So this is where it comes really comes in. Ralph Bunch in the 30s, writing from Howard University, says that. Voting and political participation have benefited some in the black elite, but not benefited everybody in part because a system like capitalism will accommodate a few black managers right. who can enrich themselves and look like they're representing everybody else. But each generation we move away from slavery, there is no black agenda. So, right. So, so, so during the reconstruction governments, everybody knew what we wanted. That's why they had to fight that, right? So here's where we just want to come, Angela and Nick, both y'all. How do we create a black agenda? And I'm thinking about this not from 1870s, 80s, or 90s, but from the beginning of the Congressional Black Caucus. When you had, before the CBC was founded, you had Adam Clayton Powell, who basically said, I'm black America's congressman. Charles Diggs out of Detroit area, Michigan, who went to Emmett Till's trial. But by the time they get to 71, and begin then, you, get, you see a Shirley Chisholm, you see a Ron Dellums, you see all them. Ron Walters, writing from Howard University, architect of Jesse Jackson's campaign in 84, 88, said we should, we should have something as simple as a piece of paper and with a black agenda. Here are the 10 things we want, and we don't care that we're Republican, Democrat. If you check these off, we'll vote for you. Last thing I'll ask, and accompanying that, we need an independent black political party. Angela, what happened? I think a number of things happened. Please, walk us through One. One is, it's so funny that you said there can only be a certain number of black managers and you talked about it in politics. 
It exists in entertainment. 100%. It, it, it exists in sports. You see what happened with Colin. There's a Negro that was bought off by the league to undermine Colin's efforts. So it happens everywhere. It has happened since, again, going back to slave mentality, since the plantation. One Negro that sells everybody out. It results in death. It results in undermining the agenda. It results in demise. And I'm telling you that until we can be disciplined enough to not focus so much on securing the bag and focus on securing what's in the best interest of the community writ large, we're going to have this problem. I think the other part of it is I I speak ad nauseum more than anything else. Eugene can attest to this about a structured black agenda, about having a black political party. When Dr. King was assassinated in 1968, the year before he did a speech called Where Do We Go From Here? See, he's been whitewashed. Dr. King had a radical agenda about supporting black banks in this country to ensure that we could get the access to capital we need to have viable black businesses. So supporting black businesses and then supporting our community institutions. That's a three prog agenda that easily we could support. But we don't have a cohesive one. The last time the black community met as a cohesive unit every single year was during slavery. The, the very next meeting that we had was the 1972 Gary, Indiana Black Political Convention. Could you, we could have, you tell people, because they probably may not know about Gary 72, and it's very important. Sure. I think, well, one, it's very important, but it's also very unfortunate. No question. Uh, um, no question. No question. <laughs> so it's, it's like we're celebrating these moments, but, you know, a celebration, there's something, something missing. Sisters, we were missing, but I'll, I'll get into that in a the second. Queen Mother Moore was there. Well I'm, well, well, I'm getting ready to tell you why we were missing. Okay. This is the year Shirley Chisholm was running for president. I'll come back to that. So... In Gary, Indiana, there were there was there were a number of things going on for us politically and economically. And they said we need to have a black uh, meeting where there are delegates from each community represented and we could establish a black agenda, which they did. The challenge is Shirley Chisholm was running for president that year and they chose not to support Shirley Chisholm. So that was the only black candidate on the ballot. How do you then leave from there and endorse a white man? Right. Um, because he's a Democrat. So therein lies the problem. We always have somebody that's able to be bought off. So then the challenge becomes to you all, to myself, how can we be disciplined enough to establish a black agenda? Right. And I still don't think that that means that's in the set of voting. So what I would say, I mean, just, you know, the layman speaking for a second. No, layman, we had a conversation. <laughs> no, Not, very important because it was the black politicians at Gary. Yeah. Coleman Young was a state senator out of Michigan, came to mayor of Detroit. They were the ones who were hesitant to stay in the room with the rank and file cats. Because right. remember, Michigan walked out and it was Amiri Baraka who took over the stand and was like, Michigan, Michigan. And look, it was the beginning of the black politicians who turned their back. And part of that beef with Shirley Chisholm was sexism. She was a woman. Right. Part of it was the idea that Shirley Chisholm isn't connected to any of this conversation. She's out there grandstanding. And I think that in some ways, the individual black politician is the legacy of and I would include Barack Hussein Obama in that, community organizer in that, because he turned his back on Trinity Baptist Church of Christ, that's for sure, saying that if you see me, you see us. That's that shadow boxing showbiz politics. And I think, Gary, you're right. That's the unfortunate thing. That's when it fractured. But it wasn't because of the rank and file black people. It was the beginning of the black politicians saying, I don't want to take no chance, and I'm trying to get something from George McGovern. And it just goes back to what I always say, and they say, politics is just entertainment for ugly people. Like, <laughs> I mean, the devil is alive. <laughs> well, uh, not you though, of course. We know, <laughs> but that's what I'm saying. But what I'm saying, and that that's a that's a statement oh, that's that comes. Interesting, right? You know, it's it's all entertainment at the end of the day, and that's what. And that was, you know, a, a statement from like a George Carlin, you know, from from back in the day. But it was more about really 
it's going back to my argument of all of this being a facade. And I think you even stated something like, you know, what are the other times where we have come together? And I just go back to those ideas of Garveyism. I go to, to Black Wall Street. I go back to, to New Africa, the Republic of New Africa. Like these were ideas we were saying, we no, y'all do that over there. We gonna go start, we, we wanted to turn the whole South into a place called New Africa. You know what I'm saying? And that, like that to me, that idea or even even, you know, I don't want to be like, oh, let's all go back to Africa. But it goes back to that statement that you talk about, where it's like we always measure our success based off of it like it started at slavery. So, yeah, everything looks better. <laughs> like, but if we go beyond, like, it's, we're much more than America. And it goes back to that stage, like, America is just an ATM. Every other culture come here to get their bag and then go and teach and educate and, and, and build their own. But we want to get in here and figure out how to get it done. No, let's get this bag, because that's what Trump about. That's what everybody's about, this individualism, this ideology of, like, I can succeed and I don't care about everybody else. That's that elitist mentality. The elite is the elite class, the, the ruling class and then we just gonna march to their beat the whole time when we have more power as a community and a culture to do that. That's all I'm what saying. You I mean, yeah. can, can we use the local example? Because this might be where y'all had it, the shared ground. Jackson, Mississippi. And I know your friend, Chokwe Anton Lumumba. The son, along with his sister Rakia, of uh, Chokwe Lumumba and Nubia Lumumba. Right? They moved to Mississippi because they wanted Mississippi to be one of those five black states, Republic of New Africa. The reason Chokeway ends up down there is because when they have a shootout with the Jackson police who decide, oh, you niggas can't come down here and build no black nation. They call Detroit for help. Who picks up the phone but Rosa Parks? Wow. Rosa Parks is working in elected official John Conyers congressional office. So now you got a national. And this was after I've clearly. Yeah, no, 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 no. Right, this, right. Is, this is this is coming up to today. Right. The shootout takes place late 60s, early 70s. In fact, C.L. Franklin left Republican New African meeting in Detroit. I'm raising all this because uh, I'm the Franklin daddy. Exactly. I want to tie this together in terms of local politics and maybe you feel differently about local politics, right? Right. A congressman, John Conyers, Rosa, gives Rosa Parks a job because she got to leave Alabama. He's a congressman because people voted and put him in. Chokeway goes down with his wife. They go to Mississippi. Because of that, his son, he becomes the mayor of Jackson and his son becomes the mayor after that. Is voting different if you can take over a city and have a revolutionary approach? Would you say, how would you distinguish between local politics, national politics, state level politics, I in terms of the importance to vote? Go ahead, I'm sorry, I didn't mean. No, 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 I, I started talking before you were finished. Um, there are policies that impact our everyday life on all of those levels. They work co in, they, they work hand in hand. Am I absolutely amazingly proud of the, I think uh, Mississippi may have the largest number of yes. black elected officials, period. People don't know a that. member of the Congressional Black That's Caucus. Right. That's right. Benny Gordon Thompson, who's a, grad, a two-time graduate of HBCUs, also my former boss, ensured that would be the case. He's developed a very, very carefully crafted strategy to train up black elected officials, right? They literally have a boot camp for these folks to participate in. Why? Because we have to take over on the local, state, and federal level to ensure policies are put in place that are in our best interest. It's far from a facade. Is it the most revolutionary thing we could do? I would argue yes. 
if that is the only, only the first step, if it is treated as if it is the first step. And you know that's not the final frontier. I would also give to you Congresswoman Maxine Waters, um, who's not in Mississippi at all. Um, but every black person in this country thinks that she might be their member of Congress. Um, Andrew actually, Gillum actually has an amazing story where he talks about watching her on C-SPAN when he was a student government uh, president in high school. And he thought that was his congressperson because it was the only black person in Congress he saw so often. But I'm bringing her up to say, even as an elected official on the federal level, Congressman Waters is still organizing every day in her community. My first job in politics was with her. It, we were protesting the shutting the shutting down of King Drew's Trauma Center because that would adversely impact black lives, right, and our ability to survive. I don't think that these things are mutually exclusive. I think they go hand in hand. And black folks have always known that our resistance is a part of this. I think about, um, Professor Carr, you brought up uh, how they were purging and, and keeping people from voting. We know of the voting intimidation tactics that existed for years. They used to try to kill us to keep us out the ballot booth, right? And that was after Reconstruction, really. So after we saw black folks elected for the first time, there was Jim Crow. There had to be the 1965 Voting Rights Act, which we know was decimated through the 2013 Supreme Court decision. This summer alone, they decided that if you sit out of three elections, they can purge you from the rolls. That is what your Supreme Court has decided. Here is the, with the fundamental question I would ask you to ask yourselves every day about this first process. If your vote didn't matter, why are they working so hard to mm. keep it from you? Mm. There's an Instagram meme that says that in a variety of forms, but I would challenge you with, with that. Why, if your vote doesn't matter? If your participation in this process doesn't matter, have they been caught on camera saying that they're concerned about the minority vote, saying that voter ID would keep black people from voting because they're you know, like. So let's be very clear. Some of the best forms of revolutionary engagement we can have is by taking their system and using it against them. That, and it's like to your point, and, and I want to open it up to the floor because I know every time wise, but uh, to even to answer that question, I think Mark Twain said, like, if voting really counted, they wouldn't let us do it. Um, and I just say that and to, to put it on the table again, to be provocative. <laughs> but also I truly believe like, and, and at no point did I ever say I wasn't voting. And I always say voting. Are you voting? Let me finish this. No, because that I'm glad you asked that question. That's what I'm saying. But but the the idea, because every time someone gets that question, every time we're asked that question, it's like getting asked the flu shot. Or, uh, or, or, or have you had your HIV test? Yeah, nigga. No, it ain't none of y'all went and got your HIV test. You just, you well, hope it's all good. But that's what, but that's what I'm saying. It's the right answer to say. You vote? Oh yeah, I'm voting. You registered? Goddamn right, I'm registered. You ain't registered. And I'm just, I'm being a realist about the idea. So when you say, am I voting? I, I've exercised my vote every election. And sometimes that exercise is to not vote for the two people that you believe, sometimes I go Nick Cannon. Which I'm on my Dick. Dick, Dick Gregory. I'm on my Dick Gregory. Who are you voting for? Well, yeah. Right. So, but and, and <laughs> again, a, like we've all agreed that there needs to be someone that speaks for us in our in, uh, agenda. Right. But when you go to that idea of this process, and we know how important all of this election is, because I do, people have died, our ancestors, and and even I, I, I look at it like gun rights and all that. I don't necessarily think we should have weapons and guns, but if you got them, nigga, I want them too. Like, bottom line, I want what you got. 
You know what I mean? Like, so if you got the right to vote, I want the right to vote, whether I exercise my right or not. So I go to that point in saying, like, I treat voting this whole government like I treat video games. I know this shit ain't real, but I'm going to play. Like, but it is but, real. So it's so crazy no, because you even brought up the person who said, I'm too broke. To vote. Brother right. told me that. In- What's so crazy to me is I'm thinking about um, like Andrew's campaign right now or Stacy, where they're just trying to raise people's wages to a livable wage. I'm from Seattle. So again, a position hey. of privilege. Hey. <laughs> yeah. So in, in the 206, we have a mandatory $15 an hour minimum wage. Right. When I think about the people in the South who could have never seen that. Getting bags. You know what I mean? Like, you have never seen that. That is not fair. And they deserve to be compensated. These people are living off shoestring budgets. Andrew says all the time, he said in the debate last night, trying to figure out what bill to pay and what bill they won't pay this time. Right. That's not fair. That's not real. But I guarantee you the people in positions of power who trust you to act invisible, who trust you to feel like you do not have the time, the ability or the money to to exercise your right to vote, who know that if they put that voter ID thing on the ballot or or in the legislature and you don't have a representative to speak your piece. Will pass that legislation. Your nearest driver's license location, like in some places in Alabama, is 150 miles away. You definitely can't afford to go get the license to now go vote. Right. So it's that's exactly what it is. That's exact. And so I'm just saying to you, like we are too broke not to vote. Mm. We are too sick not to vote. You talk about access to health care. They're trying to make that corporate. You want to secure the bag on your own. But what about all your brothers and sisters? We got enough black folks doing that. Going to secure the bag and forgetting everything that was behind this. That's awful. That is, it is. That's that everybody. Is. But I'm saying we need to be very clear about what is before us. And we need to be disciplined enough to say, I can both vote and set a black agenda. I can both set a black agenda and opera- operationalize that agenda. I can secure the bag and make sure my community is taken care of. Right. I need to be paying attention to the issues surrounding mental health in this country so we don't send another Kanye West into the White House to advocate for our interests all the while shooting us in the foot. We have to figure all of those things out. Y'all, we have to walk, chew gum, hopscotch, shop, and vote at the same damn time. Okay. Don't forget Double Dutch. Oh, we, Double Dutch. Because <laughs> Nick Cannon thinks all one, of us again. One, one final question, though, because I think this is where we really, maybe the, this is another point where we no, have to consider. Yeah. And there are the answers in this room. Right, no question. Dick Gregory said, and write me in. One reason he said, write me in, but he also said, write yourself in if you yeah, want. That's what I you, Right, no question. You have to vote for the person who represents what you want. That black agenda. I'm thinking about it. Seattle's a great example. Uh, Washington, D.C., Atlanta. Atlanta. Black wealth, first public housing in the country, also the first to tear it down. A black run city where there is some of the greatest income and wage inequality. And we can't blame that on white people. We blame that on black politicians who aren't strong enough to face the corporate parties, right? DC, they just passed a minimum wage for people who wait tables in this town. It was overturned by the DC city council, including black representatives. Why? Because they can't stand up to the restaurant lobby. In Seattle, beautiful city. Hey, Jimi Hendrix, you know, last time I was out there, I said, take me to the Hendrix Museum. I got, you know, these are my people. At the same time, extreme inequality, income inequality. Now, my question is this. When we, if we're going to vote, and I'm thinking about Andrew Gillum, Sam grad, he gets to pick the next Florida Supreme Court if he's elected, three judges, which is going to flip the whole thing, Stacey Abrams in Georgia. Does it matter 
And I'm thinking now about this black agenda. The pe what should the people we vote for look like? Because Barack Obama wasn't it. In my mind, Barack Obama hijacked generations of black voting and personalized and made it, I'm not saying he was a the demon, but before we cast our ballot for an individual, what should they represent? Otherwise you might end up winning Atlanta. A lot of black elected politicians and a bunch of homeless people and a bunch of developers taking over the AUC. Well, I mean, what is it? Which, should a black politician represent that black agenda? I Yeah, I absolutely think a black politician should um, not only reflect that black agenda, but they should openly advocate for it. I think one of the things that we have to come to terms with is we automatically expect that because you look like me, you're going to push my agenda. Yes. That is not reasonable. That's why I told y'all voting is just the first step. You have to hold these folks accountable. They're being held accountable by the lobbyists. They're being held accountable by the folks in their neighborhood. Why are we silent? Like, oh, we got you there. We made history. We done. <laughs> you're not done. And I actually would beg to differ with the, the Barack Obama piece. Do I agree with everything Barack Obama did? Absolutely not. But I do think he did a lot, given the circumstances. What are the circumstances? Very white in the Senate and the and the uh, House. We had a, a Senate minority leader at the time before he became the majority who said his mission was to make Barack Obama a one term president. Why is that? Because he had black skin. That was why he did. He knew that if Barack Obama had another, not just another term, but another term where he could get legislation passed, that would overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly benefit us. I do think there was one fatal flaw in how Barack Obama saw policymaking. A rising tide does not lift, or maybe a rising tide does lift all boats. But if you don't have a boat, you're not lifted. You're drowning. So I think that we, we do have some pushback, right, to offer our politicians, and we also have to give them cover. And we can't give them cover if we're not organized with an agenda that says, if your ass doesn't support these people and this agenda, we're gonna vote you out. And right now, we don't have that kind of power. We haven't exercised it. That's right. There's nobody on the planet like you, so why would you buy a generic mattress built for everyone else? Helix Sleep built a sleep quiz that takes two minutes to complete, and they use the answers to match your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress. Whether you're a side sleeper, hot sleeper, like a pleasure firm bed, with Helix, there's no more guessing or confusion. Just go to helixsleep.com slash A-Rye, take their two-minute sleep quiz, and they'll match you to a mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life. For couples, Helix can even split the mattress down the middle, providing individual support needs and fill preferences for each side. They have a 10-year warranty, and you get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free. Right now, Helix is offering up to $125 off all mattress orders. Get up to $125 off at helixsleep.com slash A-R-Y-E. That's helixsleep.com slash A-R-Y-E for $125 off your mattress order. Helixsleep.com slash A-R-Y-E. Let's get, I know, I know, because you got another thing you got to run. Let's, yeah. let's get a few people, if that's all right. Go ahead, and then I'll get a few more. Well, thank you guys again for coming down. It means a lot. Uh, my name is Edward Foltz. I'm a second year student at the law school. My question is to talk about this black agenda. So I know uh, the Black Panther Party, the 10 point program with Bobby Seale and Hugh and Newton. I want y'all to think about that. If y'all know about it, how to, for that agenda to be used or utilized in 2018? Yeah, I studied it uh, profusely because that, I mean, really coming from the West Coast and even a lot of projects that I'm currently developing have to deal with Bobby Seale and Oakland and all those things. So um, again, we even discussed this. A lot of that 
Everybody thought it was about the guns and the rights, but it was about feeding the children that's in the right, morning. That's right. It was right. about educating. And if we, that's always my answer to all of this, to what we discussed and even understanding and educating yourself on these policies. So you can then say, all right, well, I know so much about this that, yeah, all right, I'm going to vote for it, but I'm going to also do this about it. I'm also invest my money into it. I'm also take my money out of this bank because this yes. bank is the one that is supporting the policy that I don't want to be a part of. Come on now. And, and though... That to me is real effort. And I think that's where we do find common grounds. It's like, vote, yeah, go ahead, get to it. But that, it does not stop there. So whether you do it or not, my mission as a radical thinker is like, yeah, okay, yeah, I'll check the box, whatever you want me to do. But now let's get to our community. And that's what the Black Panther Party was all about. And that's why they were, uh, that's why Hoover said that they were the most dangerous terrorist group in America because they knew that and they wanted to exercise that in that way. And so if that does become the black agenda, even though people see it as extreme or, or radical, I think that's a great place to start. Absolutely. Thanks, Ed. Morehouse man, too, by the way. <laughs> Go ahead, Fatu. Hey, everybody. My name is Fatu So. I'm a senior legal communications major, African studies minor from Detroit, Michigan. Howard intro. I just want to say thank you so much for coming. Um, I really didn't know like how today would go, but I feel like I've gained a lot of knowledge. Um, just from a couple of points that y'all brought up, I wrote a few things down. Um, you were talking about being a realist, and y'all also spoke about um, the importance of just the black elite in general. And going to Howard, it can be very conflicting, um, especially, I'm not a school of business, but especially for a school of B people. Um, I feel like our university does not, they do a disservice at not teaching us to have our own. Like they teach us to just go ahead and um, flow into the everyday white America, corporate America, um, just day-to-day -day basis. And so my question is, what is our duty as Howard students to ensure that, okay, we got to Howard. That was the first step. We got to Howard. How do we get out of that black elitist mindset? Like put, how do we put ourselves in the shoes of a poor black woman who is probably working day to day to ensure that her children can just get the bare minimum. And how do we do it in a way that allows us to, I can't even get like all the thoughts together. Cause it's like, you know, our, we don't read as a people, like we don't read. So we're having this conversation with all these scholars in a room and it's people who are working their ass off every single day. And they're, the bare minimum for them is voting just that black person in. But after that, they have to take care of their family. They got to go back to so it. So what, wow. what, is, what is our duty? Like, how are we supposed to even... Y'all saying the first step is to vote. My daddy don't know how to read. Mm. Like, what, what are we supposed to do? I'm sorry. Can I give you a hug first for having the courage to say that? Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I know that's a lot of pressure. I'm so sorry. So I started this conversation, at least my portion, talking about the position of privilege that I'm in, like recognizing that that's not everybody's story. Um, I thank you for grounding us in that way, because um, you think about the, our ancestors who tried to figure out how to read just so they could get free. Right. And so we're talking about the first step. We're not saying that's the first step to your ultimate survival, but we are saying that's the first step. Well, I'm saying that's the first step to your political engagement um, because it requires so much of us. It is hard to be black in this country in 2018. 
Is it easier than what our ancestors had? Absolutely. But I think that we would be remiss if we did not acknowledge that everybody doesn't come from the same background, that we're not monolithic. We are not a monolithic people. That's in part why it's so difficult to develop a unified black agenda. But what I would challenge you with is to remember, um, I think, the gravity of this moment. We want to make sure that your dad and everybody else who can't is able to read. We want to make sure that all of us leaves from here, not just this school, but from our family backgrounds of how we're raised. We want to be more empowered. The way for us to achieve that power, Dr. King defined power as the ability to achieve purpose. Right. You can't achieve purpose if you're oppressed and you're walking in the condition of that oppression. You have to figure out how can I unify with some other folks and feel like, one, I'm not alone because I'm not. There are people in this room and on this campus who are going to have our sisters back, right? And figure out what we need. But absolutely, we have some responsibilities to our community that go beyond checking a box in the ballot booth. But that is a first step. Whether we're talking about making access to transportation easier, access to capital. You talked about we're just taught to come here, go work on somebody else's job. We want to make sure that we're able to support and stand up and empower our own businesses, our own organizations that represent our own interests. That is not black nationalist thinking. That is the least that we can do. That's how we can be accountable to each other and empower each other. So I thank you for sharing that. Um, like I really, really do, because I think it, we do need these moments to ground us. I just visited a women's prison with Congresswoman Barbara Lee in Oakland. The other day and more often than not more most of the women that we sat with there were of course black women but they were there because they happened to be in the car when their boyfriend had cocaine in the trunk right lost all of their freedom for that we know that it's we know that it's ridiculous and crazy the prison industrial com complex is another podcast for another day but i'm just saying we need to understand that the way most of this stuff changes is through policy so anyway, and and I no 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 go ahead we get one that's what I was saying go ahead go ahead go ahead nah yeah I was just making sure she good on time yeah yeah but I'll leave yeah we'll get we'll get Charlemagne at the bookstore y'all can all go with Angela to the bookstore after this you gotta go too I'm telling you vote I never said I wasn't voting I know but you gonna vote for real and I'm gonna have you put up a PSA the I Nick Cannon am bullshit. <laughs> I, and, and again, I, I think because we'll probably give us one more yeah, opportunity uh, and one question and we'll give, you know, some closing statements okay. from from Angela. But again, to say all of that is, yes, I am a registered voter. And but to the young lady's point right there that we all felt the gravity and the power no in question. that statement, no it has to be so much more than yes. every couple of years we got to get excited now everybody want to start watching cnn and mad at fox news and then you know when the super bowl come on we ain't really we don't care no more it's more now now voting is turning to fantasy football right. so all i'm saying is this, this room in my opinion this room is the answer where we can truly have people who are connected to the community in a real way do something not just for themselves, not just come here and get your degrees and all that and go get the good job, but come here to build up your community because that's what these institutions were truly created for. And they're in the halls, the, the people who walk through these halls from the Frederick Douglasses to the W.B. Du Bois to the Stokely Carmichaels were here for their people. They wasn't here to, to big themselves up.
up. And that's where we get into that conversation of ego economics versus culture and community. And and that's, you know, that probably will be my final statement to what it is and even my idea about what voting is. Sure, do it. I'm registered. I will vote. I don't, like I said, I'm probably going to be on my Dick Gregory and write my name. Yeah, but I also pay attention to local government right. and policy in the communities that I'm paying my taxes in. I'm making sure I'm involved in that conversation because I got a lot of money and they know that <laughs> I can put, whether it's to their campaigns and all that, it's like, yo, my, my money matters. And I, and I know a lot of people with a lot of money and they may not be educated on the policy. So when I'm having these dinners and meetings at my house, like, yo, you know, they trying to do this and you get you, you paying your money over here. That's where it really matters. And it's like from whether it's these athletes, whether it's these rappers, these entertainers, if we start putting all of that money together for us, that's real change. And that's what I really feel like. It's too many black millionaires and billionaires going on right now for us not to rally and gather together and take very intelligent people, very connected people like Angela and say, yo, let's support them. And that starts with the Gillums. That starts with all of the can- candidates that we have. But we got to support us. Not I just heard you just say just now you were writing a check to Andrew's campaign and put you, all what your do, money. What do, you, what, what, what do you need? What do you what need? What do you I need? Know you what do you need? I got it. Y'all heard it. It's on the podcast. It's nothing. Hi, my name is Carlin Newhouse. I'm from Seattle, Washington. So hey. hey. <laughs> 206, 206. Y'all don't know nothing about that. Um, but I just have, um, I really was thinking a lot about everything you guys were saying. First of all, thank you guys for being here and allowing us to like be in this conversation with you guys. Um, I do agree that I believe voting matters. I also believe that our system is whack and corrupt. And I do not personally believe that you can, voting will change a system that was intended for us to not succeed. Um, My issue with that idea is, is that if we were to get all of the black politicians that have all of our agendas at heart and they believe everything that we believe and they do everything we want, we still live in a government system that will still assassinate people like this if they get into positions of power. So my issue with that is, is that even if you get to the position of, okay, we can make change, if you still live in a system that is going to kill you for trying to make change, that is where things become problematic and become complex. So um, my two questions are, the first question I have is, um, do you believe there is an either or approach of it's either throw over the system or get into the system? Because I believe it's a combination of both. I do believe you had to get into the system to overthrow the system, but I do not believe the system can continue because if America continues, it's never going to benefit. She answered her own question. Yeah. Women, anybody. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I would like to know your thoughts. And the second question is, when we get black politicians, into positions of power, which we will continue to do because that's the only option that we have as of the American system we live in right now. How do we hold those politicians accountable to the things that they say during the elections? Because a lot of times politicians will come in, like you were saying, two weeks before the elections, and they go into poor communities and black communities and immigrant communities and are like, we love you, we're going to support you. And then they get into the office and they don't do anything. And they don't go back to the hood while they're in office. And they don't support anybody who's any position of oppression. And we all have privilege in some sense. But how do we hold those politicians 
accountable to the things that they said they were going to do because we voted them in we gave them their money but when they're there they're there for the term that we voted them in how do we hold them accountable yeah I think the answer is 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 pretty straightforward I'll give you a, a good example um, Doug Jones was elected by 98% black women um, and I think it was 93% of black men in Alabama um, to keep a predator out many people voted for what was in their interest of the community against Roy Moore and not for Doug Jones nevertheless he got there off of those votes when the Brett Kavanaugh um, Supreme Court nomination came up Doug Jones got amnesia and forgot where his votes came from and so I believe it's incumbent upon p people in positions of power and who have platforms to remind politicians when they don't hear the voices anymore where they went knocking on doors Eugene's trying to give me my exit music um, knocking on doors to, to ask people and to plead for votes well, we had, of course, it was the CBC Foundation's annual legislative conference. I was moderating a panel and reminded him of how he got into office mm -hmm. and then told him, I said, um, I wanted to know if the Supreme Court vote was held today, how would you vote? And he was like, I don't deal in hypotheticals. I was like, well, pretend it's real. <laughs> um, and so he didn't he didn't answer right then. But I said, let me tell you, there are 98 percent of black women who are counting on you to remember how you got in office. Mm. And I think we all have to do that. And I gave the Senate number and I said, in case he forgets when he walks out, the number is 202-224-3121. There are a lot of easy things we can do. Right. We can call. We can send emails. We can write letters. We can go to fundraisers and remind. I, re I remember the sister that uh, 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 protested Hillary Clinton at her fundraiser said, I am not a predator. There are all kinds of things we can do to remind people how dangerous rhetoric can be and how dangerous their votes can be if they forget how they got in office. So that's just a, a short uh, number of examples. But I would say definitely don't ever silence the power of your voice. You don't have to be a baller, shot collar like Nick Cannon. He, he didn't want to say, I got a lot of money. He got big checks. But if you, if you don't, because you got student loan debt right now, that's fine. Your voice still matters, right? It still matters. Can we let, we're going to let yeah. uh, Nick close it out. You got the last words. Your class. Oh, no, but I'm, I'm no, 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 Because I'm, I'm just going to get out of your way. I want to thank Angela on your behalf yeah. and on our behalf. Thank you, all. Thank you. And I was going to thank both of y'all. This, this, this is a fledgling enterprise. This really came out of Nick's mind, came out of your mind, brother. But what we see, oh, no, absolutely. But what, and what we see is, this is exactly what you were saying. An organic, small space, not a lot of bells and whistles, a level of conversation that is beyond that soundbite stuff and something that we now have a blueprint for continuing. So thank you for thank introducing us. Yeah. And that's, and that's, you know, in closing and, and allowing everything, I would say I, I am truly humbled and uh, grateful for this opportunity from Dr. Carr and Angela, but specifically even more so. I feel like I learned something today. You know what I mean? And I, I, I talk a lot. You know what I mean? I talk real loud, but I feel like we've had this conversation and it goes back and forth quite a bit, but to have it in front of everyone and even to have such a real moment in such an intimate setting, I learned about us and I learned that, you know, we can't move this culture, this conversation in our community forward by continuing to do this. So again, thank you thank so much you. for being here. Thank you. Thank you. All right. That's what's up. Until the next one. Until the next one. Channing's class. We out of here. Surviving to do right, my people are warriors. All we know is the fight, praying to see God and everything I write. Yeah, who are my children of the light? 
you're having to do right My people are warriors All we know is the fight Praying to seek God and everything Now call me the yellow shotter I say I'm just my father's daughter Like Christ my body beating But I refuse to holler Won't give them the satisfaction But I let the tears flow Steady praying for them Father forgive them They don't know That the revolution will not be televised Twitter, Facebook, excuse me as I scrutinize Out of the mouth of this babe Comes perfected praise As if you needed a sound